Hi guys, and welcome to the Chainsaw Carving Podcast. On this episode, I'm going to talk with Griffin Ramsey from Texas. And just so you know, in case you have kiddos in the room, there is some adult language, so just be aware of that. Um, We're going to talk about a lot of things with Griffin, kind of her art background, how she got into chainsaw carving, and the topic of the CNC machine. So stay tuned, and I'll bring Griffin on. Hi, Griffin. Welcome. Hi. It's good to finally talk. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, no problem. So what's your story as an artist and a chainsaw carver? Well, my background is in theater. So when I was in middle school and high school, I was really into the drama club. And later, um, I took some time off, just worked. I worked in food service for a long time and a bunch of other odd jobs. And um, just tried a lot of different things. And then at some point, went uh, to school. I was a non-traditional student. And I got a BFA in theater with a focus on directing and design. And all the jobs I got after college in theater and film were kind of just like set design and props and costumes and makeup, stuff like that um, in the art department. And so that was where I got my start when it came to making stuff. Yeah, that's cool. That's That's a unique thing to transfer from that. I mean, it makes sense, but I've never heard a story like that. Well, the thing I like about theater as a background is um, a few things. It teaches you how to work with other people in a collaborative way. Mm -hmm. And um, it teaches you how to make something out of nothing because there's never any money in theater and you kind of have to beg, borrow, steal and put things together and, um, you know, make a show out of just, I don't know, materialize things out of thin air. And then I think that's a really handy skill and it and also just teaches you a design process. So the stuff I learned in school as far as where I start with my ideas, it kind of follows the pattern of what I learned when I was um, learning how to do set design and everything, even though it's for carvings now. But right. I guess it gave me some sort of foundation to build build upon. And and I guess my first jobs out of college, too, were my professors liked my work, and so they recommended me to the people they knew in the business. So then that was, I guess, a good segue to actually get some creative jobs. Right. And then set design, um, my dad's actually in theater, so I've seen some set design work, but it's is it it's some three dimensional and then some kind of relief or yeah I guess it depends on the space you're working with because um sometimes you know you have a proscenium style stage where you can kind of you know play with the perspective because you have sort of a frame around the whole thing and it can be built like an uh built like a canvas I suppose or like a shadow box but then a lot of theater now is just in these like black box spaces or non-traditional spaces and you've got the audience surrounding you from all sides and Things have to transform on stage. And uh, so there's just like, I mean, I guess it depends a lot on your space. Sure. Okay. So, and maybe this kind of goes into my next question. I was going to ask you, um, what other mediums have you worked in, both either two-dimensional or three-dimensional before chainsaw carving? Well, so, um, you know, I did the, the, actually, the reason I went into set design, as far as like, after going out into the world and trying, you know, doing odd jobs and, and working, you know, typical non-creative type jobs. Um, I, I started decorating drag shows in San Marcos, Texas. Okay. And, um, started making the sets for these big, like drag shows. <laughs> so yeah. um, I had a lot of fun doing that, but I was making things out of, you know, giant shoes, giant high heeled shoes 
and trying to learn how to weld and, you know, piece things together, a lot of paper mache and just like a lot of really time consuming, inexpensive materials. And I guess that sort of gave me the craving to go and learn how to do it right. Um, mm-hmm. so that's why I went into college, like went into theater and set design in college or design in general. And then okay. after, after that, when I um, got out of school, I did some design for theater. And then in Austin at the time, the film scene was um, fairly robust. So I started picking up little film projects, like independent films and um, uh, like commercial gigs, doing makeup or set dressing or, you know, whatever I could help with, props, making props. And then after that, I started working with my ex-husband. Um, he had a, a small, at that point, it was a, um, a small company with his friends. And they worked on different creative things. At the time, they were doing like a cartoon called Red vs. Blue. So I started jumping in with them, helping them with their like conventions and and uh, projects. And when they started doing live action, um, I jumped in and started helping on a lot of their uh, art department stuff. Um, <laughs> well, that's my dog. Sorry. That's <laughs> all right. It's a little gross. Um, uh, so I started helping them with their like set design, props, costumes, makeup helping them make it look more professional um, because they were just sort of doing this stuff out of uh, at the beginning. It was at one of the guys, one of the guy's houses and then it moved into a small office and it grew from there. And that's a really, really big company. So sure. I worked with them for quite a while doing that kind of thing. Um, podcasts. I wrote a web comic for five years, which um, I worked with this artist in Canada. We saw each other maybe once a year, but we communicated through email and we put out a web comic three times a week without fail for five years. Oh, then- wow. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a grind for sure. Yeah. And, um, and then I would, I would, it was, I was sort of responsible at the end of every year for building these comic books into like, um, graphic novels. Okay. Using InDesign, doing all the layout and then coordinating with that. I think they use a company in Korea to get them published. So we self published these comic books. And so I did that for five years cool. and at the same time was doing their production design and, um, appearing in podcasts, appearing in this, web series called Immersion, which is um, taking video game things, like things that are true in video games, um, and trying to bring them into the real world and put um, some of the guys in the company through these sort of obstacle courses inspired by video games. So the first one we did for Immersion, which um, we had this, when you drive a car in a game, you're usually sitting like behind the car watching the car as you drive it. Uh So we wanted to see if you could go through like, cones and an obstacle course driving but only being able to see your car from behind so we rigged up this camera like hovering up behind the behind the truck and then we like blocked out like all of the uh all of the windows the windshield and then put like a screen that was like playing what was being seen in real time from behind the vehicle and then they could drive <laughs> cones it was that really interesting actually because you know you get used to these things in video games but then you try them in real life and it's kind of crazy so we yeah did, we did a bunch of things and i helped make all these like weird props and whatever. <clears throat> so cool. But about seven or so years ago, um, I ended up leaving the company and I wanted to, at the time when I was leaving Rooster Teeth, I had at that point kind of developed this online following through their community site. They had a community site kind of similar to Facebook in the early days when Facebook was just getting started. So it was fairly like interesting concept. And so, um, we were really encouraged in the company to only be on that, that site and only put our stuff there and like, put our blog there, put all of our photos, everything. And when I left, I knew that I, that I had all these people there that were showing me support and 
saw the work that I did and I wanted to take them someplace where, wherever I was going to be next. I wanted to have something to point them to, to where I could cultivate that for myself and <clears throat> keep them like, keep them aware of like my future projects and stuff if they were interested. Yeah. And so um, I decided that I wanted to launch a YouTube channel and I figured I would just kind of do what I've been doing for them. Like things that were inspired by video games or pop culture, um, making props, random stuff, using different materials every time, kind of like theater where it's like just something different every time. Mm -hmm. I'd always wanted to try chainsaw carving because I grew up in Oregon. Um, I come from a a logging family. My grandfather, uh, he worked in the mill, but in his spare time, he was a whittler. And so as a kid, um, he always had these wood projects going and I mean, there were of course small, small scale, like cowboy scenes and things like that. He would, he would carve all these like painstakingly by hand and my grandmother would paint them. And he used to make me like cute little things. Like my favorite bird's cardinal. So he made me a cardinal. He'd make me oh, like, cool. he, he would carve roses for all the women in the family. These like little brooches, roses. Um, yeah. but I insisted on mine being a daisy, which he got really annoyed by, but my grandmother <laughs> painted this rose to look like a daisy for me. Um, <laughs> so I was enchanted by wood carving at an early age because of him. Mm-hmm. At growing up in Oregon, we would, we only grew up, I was like 45 minutes from the coast. So, you know, on weekends we go as a family and like drive up and down and do the beach thing. And, mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of chainsaw carvers, um, all, all along highway 101. And there was this one place in particular that really like charmed me as a kid because it had totem bowls and it was this place called sea gulch um in seaside oregon and i think the guys who own it like it's still there but it's not the same kind of place that's when at the time back in the 80s it was sort of this like roadside attraction and were all these carvings like in the building and all around the building and then there were carvings like up in these paths behind you could go walk around like in the trees in these little paths and there were all these little like carvings hidden hidden around you like kind of just like placed in this little world and yeah. crazy little buildings and structures and stuff that was like mechanical and moving. Um, just really this like cool off the grid, uh, amusement park. Yeah. And, uh, that place really like stuck in my memory. And so years and years later, you know, 30 years later, um, maybe not that like 20 something years later, I'm in Texas and telling my, uh, at the time my husband, or I guess it was, he was my boyfriend at the time telling him like, Oh, I've always wanted to try to change that carving. And a little bit about, you know, growing up in Oregon. And then uh, when I'm pregnant, for my first Mother's Day gift, he buys me a chainsaw. And uh, I'm, you know, like at that point, six months pregnant or something. Like I'm too scared to try it because I've never held a chainsaw in my life. And I'm not going to start like a big pregnant belly. So I put it in the basement and I forget about it for like six years or so. And then so when I'm leaving the company later, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, it would be a really interesting thing to do for the first video of this YouTube channel I want to start is I want to try chainsaw carving because I think that would be really like powerful. And at the time leaving the company, I was sort of like, not sure what I wanted to do next and kind of needed to feel empowered, you know, and it seemed like a really cool, like a badass thing to put out there as like a first project. And so I had no idea how to do it. You know, I never started a saw. I don't know like what I was doing. And I drug this like thing out of the basement, got it kind of cleaned up, uh, and my ex was like, oh, you know, there was this guy down in, in uh, Manchac, Doug Moreland. He used to come by our old office and, like, bring bears and other little carvings and things like that to sell during Christmas. So he knew about this guy, Doug Moreland. And so I went out to Doug's place to see if I could kind of find out from him, like, what I needed or, you know, like, how to get started. Um, just advice, yeah. like, what kind of tools. 
And um, out at Doug's place, Cadillacs, there uh, was this other carver there, R.L. Blair. And uh, so uh, when I asked Doug if he would give a lesson, Doug's like, you know, I don't really give lessons, but R.L. might want to do it. And so I asked R.L. It, really, it was like in the morning and he was like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll give you a lesson. We'll carve an hour. <laughs> no problem. But then later in the afternoon, I get a phone call from him. And he's like, hey, like, I, I, don't, I don't really want to teach. I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, I quit. I'm like, quit what? Putting <laughs> <laughs> all this shit. I'm like, okay. Uh, so I didn't really know what he meant. But I'm like, hey, well, what if I just come out and I just work on some projects, like, out, out there? Because they had a bunch of, like, land around them. And like, if I do something stupid, just tell me I'm doing something stupid. But like, you don't have to teach me. I'll just like kind of hang out out there. And he was like, yeah, all right. And so when I came back, I brought some Lone Star because at that point I picked up on um, on what RL liked. And so um, I just kind of kept coming around with a case of beer every time, yeah. you know, and then would bring out my saw. And then he would be like, oh, well, you need to get a carving bar called Bailey's. So I'm like, okay. So I go and get a hold of them and get it set up. And so at that point, they were planning an event. But they were about to have an event called Cadillac's Capri, where um, it was really scat like a lot of things going on because Doug Moreland is this pretty locally famous singer songwriter, uh, yeah, country singer. He plays fiddle. Uh, he's written some songs like the beer song uh, that was went viral on YouTube. Uh, so he's got like he does that, but he also will do carvings too, and he does a lot of Texas style stuff. So he'll go and do like a play country, and then carve like an armadillo, you know, or some cow yeah. or whatever. So he's kind of got like a a whole like traveling show. Um, so he was having his, his event, which was like one part blue country bluegrass music festival, one part uh, Capri cook off, which Capri is, I don't know if you know, like Rocky Mountain oysters or whatever that they're called, like cowball, like <laughs> bull testicles. Yeah. They're, they had like a big contest where they deep fry bull testicles, like all the different Capri makers around would come and cook their Capri's and they would get judged. <laughs> Carve like carve some like bull testicles as like a trophy. Um, <laughs> so anyway, this is his event. It was like crazy. It was all it was also a chainsaw carving festival. It was like a lot of things at the same time. Um, right. So he, he was like, well, you know, if you want to just come out and embarrass yourself, you can just come and start carving at this event. I'm like, oh, like for my first time, just like come to your event and start carving. He's like, yeah. So I went out there and I was wearing like flip flops, like just ridiculous. I didn't have anything. I didn't know what I was doing. And I started just like hacking away this piece of wood once they got my saw started for me. And I started making like a hand, but I started like, I, I just placed the fingers wrong and it was too skinny. So then I ended up just giving up on it. I didn't ever finish anything at that event, but I did get to like hang out with those guys. They were like, you need to get chaps, you need to get shoes, you know, like you got to have things. And uh, they told me kind of the basic setup of getting an angle grinder, die grinder. Um, and I actually couldn't afford the die grinder right away. So I just did the angle grinder. Um, and so after that event, I felt like I could at least, you know, like take on that first project and maybe get it done. And so right. I found a location, this, uh, it was behind this, um, this, okay. So here's the idea at the time, here's a war three, the video game, um, was coming out and they have a gun in the game called the Lancer, which is like a chainsaw machine gun or something. It's like a chainsaw gun. Okay. And so that's what was the video cool. idea going to be like well if this this game's coming out it's going to be really popular people are going to be searching for it i'm going to do a chainsaw carving it's kind of like how you know the game has the chainsaw gun i'm going to do that uh, my friend's going to cover the theme song um and it's going to look really gritty and cool and i'm going to carve the logo of the video game in wood which is like a skull inside of a gear 
And so that was the whole idea. For this one time, I was going to do chainsaw carving. That was it. And I was going to do something different. Um, and it took me, it took me like two days, two or three days, maybe three days, to carve this uh, little skull inside of this gear. And it's so mm -hmm. funny now because I look at like the pictures of it. I don't have it anymore. Of all the textures. And it's so like, I couldn't get inside with the angle grinder. So it has all the angle grinder marks on it, you know, and there's yeah. saw texture in places I couldn't reach. And it's like kind of funny. And I go to these events when I started going to events and seeing what people are able to do. And I'm like, how did they get that perfect texture? How did they get in there? How did they get that detail? And right. granted, like there's a lot of skill out there, but it was also like they had the right tools for it. And it's kind of funny to see your progression and carving based on like the tools you get and the things you can, you, know, you can do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a combination yeah, of improving your skill, but also just getting the, the fun toys. Right. And so, yeah, there's so many toys you can buy. <laughs> well, yeah, it's endless. You find out about them through other carvers and also buy them from other carvers, you know? Yeah. Anyway, that was a really long rambling rant about how I got started carving. So the whole goal was to just do this one cool video looking tough with the chainsaw. And then I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm a carver now. And then it was just about carving after that. It's so fun, though, to hear other people's stories because nobody gets into chainsaw carving the same way, it seems like. and. I I like to how you you know thought about that video game coming out and how it was going to be really popular. Um, I don't think a lot of carvers do that, you know, like tap into popular culture, popular media, like things that are going on. Um, that probably helps a lot with YouTube. Oh, absolutely. Well, I did start from that place, and sometimes I get torn because because um like there's a lot of aspects of my business that that are about carving, but are something I'm doing something else like editing or coordinating editing or <clears throat> trying to find sponsors to pay for like pay for the editor, or like pay for part of the travel to do some of these trips. Cause a lot of times carving shows you're lucky to break even, you know, like mm -hmm. in, unless you're winning against people like Simon work or whatever, like you've got to figure out how to get your travel paid for. And also hopefully make a little money for your time. So, right. I'm trying to like balance that by doing videos and trying to find sponsors and, and it has helped really offset some of the expense. And then also of course, having um, steel's help. I've had been able to get a lot of equipment that I wouldn't probably have had the ability to invest in right away. So I've been really lucky, but a lot of that has been like just a lot of work that I've put into some of the social stuff. And I know I need to get better. Like I see myself in the advice of other people and I'm like, why am I not posting every day? And, it becomes a full-time job and I understand yeah. when carvers, especially ones that are a little less tech savvy, complain about how they don't have the time to do it. <clears throat> and I get it because it is time consuming and I'm behind on posting a bunch of stuff right now. Right. And it does like pay off and I don't know, it, it's your approach and your goals with it. And I kind of got into a little, um, I was in, I never do this, but I did some arguing in the forums with carvers today on Facebook. Like, yeah, I never do that stuff, but I kind of got into this rant because somebody posted something about how, uh, they shouldn't, shouldn't allow rough outs or any kind of rough out carvings at shows. And I'm like, well, oh, yeah, I saw that. I'm sorry. I, yeah. I saw that same post. Oh, yeah. No, no. It got real heated today. And I was kind of interested to see, I, you know, I wasn't the only one who is pro just any tool that works, you know, but yeah. I can see people's point and the beauty of it. And like I was kind of trying to say, even though I was arguing in favor of using CNC, um, for, not to say for all carving, obviously, like, but for its stock and stuff, if you've already made it a few times and you know it's going to do well, and you know you have to make a bunch of them, I get that that's how you get perfect and good and how you get fast. 
but I guess it depends on what your goal is. You know, like, is the goal really to make every single thing by hand and trying to get faster and maybe less detailed to make it cheaper when you could do exactly what you want in your mind, carve it out, put all the detail and love and thought into it, see and see the rough out and then go and add the texturizing. I don't know. And somebody made a point today too. Sorry, this is kind of a ramble, but um, uh, I forgot her name. I wish I had actually the post in front of me. She made a point where like uh, roughing out was the, the best part. I think it was a woman. Yeah. And I was like, it's true. Cause like doing the rough outs, maybe it's not as like fun because that's not the design process. It's like the stock stuff. But I hear a lot of carvers complain about having to carve stock when they want to work on their little daydream projects or whatever, you know? I know I do look at, um, if, if it were my, and it's not, but if it were my full-time job, I think I would like having a CNC, like you said, to create at least the rough outs for a lot of stuff so I could focus on sculpture. Um, and I do know, just looking at it from a little different perspective, I started out hand carving and I actually studied Harley Refsal and he's a, like a, a Scandinavian flat plane style carver in Iowa. And a lot of hand carvers will sell like blanks and, you know, so you can, you can like buy a gnome that's kind of bandsaw cut out already. Okay. Or so a lot of carvers, um, especially when they're newer to carving, they'll buy blanks that are, you know, cut out by someone else and then they carve them themselves. And I don't know if they're quite as far as a CNC machine would take it. But so when I first saw the CNC stuff, I just thought of that. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of like buying a blank. But yeah, I mean, there's people on both sides and they're both very passionate about what they think about it. <laughs> the thing I've been really impressed with with chainsaw carving is, first of all, like the first carving I sold was an owl. And I wasn't even trying to sell it. I was out with uh, Doug and RL hanging out at their place, just carving some owls. <clears throat> and I didn't really, like mine are real goofy and cartoony and like they're up against RLs. So they all look amazing. And I was just trying to like imitate what he was doing when I couldn't manage, like it just looked real goofy. But for whatever reason, this older woman who was walking around, she like fixated on it and she just loved how cartoony it looked and she really wanted to buy it. And I just was awkward because I hadn't worked out what they were going to do about commission or how we were going to do that. And they were just like, just sell it, you damn owl. So I'm like, okay. So I finally <laughs> took this woman's money. I wasn't even sure what to charge for it. I think I charged her like $70 and yeah. she was happy. I sold something by accident and I had never had that experience, I guess, with, with other art forms, just, um, and, and not just with sales, I guess, but also with people from out of nowhere, from people from high school, like getting a hold of me on Facebook when they saw I was doing it. Like, yeah, it's just all of this enthusiasm around it. And yep. it is really sellable because it's so like different, you know, like you see a million paintings at coffee shops, but you see a chainsaw carving. It's like, whoa, what's that? Oh, that's cool. You know? Right. And I know it's sometimes hard because people don't have the space or they don't know where they're going to put a sculpture versus like most people know what to do with a wall hanging. But mm -hmm. I feel like I've been kind of surprised by just the general interest in chainsaw carving, especially when it comes to the live carving stuff. And I can see why these speed carvers are proud of their skills because they are hard earned and not easy. But also, yeah. like, they, but they're fine. Like, they can go to any show and make money. And, like, sometimes you'll make more money doing a speed carving than something you spend a few days on because people see it being made and, like, the process is so fascinating to people. And you can also make mm -hmm. money by making appearances if you like can coordinate that with, you know, places that want to hire you to come and make spectacle. So right. I think that there's a like a place for all of it. Like I'm interested. It's interesting to see all the different ways that carvers have figured out how to make money at this, like between 
people that are like competitive and going and winning these like thousands of dollars at a time. Um, people that are doing sponsor type stuff, you know, working with companies, like promoting their stuff or, you know, just production, like just making a lot of things they know people will like to buy. Or some people that are just fixated on like finding a few big clients and doing custom work for them. So I don't know. It's like, it's cool. Like I really like the whole world of it. And um, I'm, it's really gotten me interested in business. And I guess just trying to survive as an artist, not just working on stuff for bigger projects, but doing my own thing. Like that's been very interesting. And so I got a little bit heated today in the discussion about the CNC, just because I feel like woodcarvers sometimes with their pride about it, get in the way of, of making, uh, I don't know, like this attitude of carver starve, carve, 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 carver starve. And it's like, yes, but or you know, like, but you can also slow down for a second and maybe strategize a little bit and like <laughs> take some time to promote yourself or at least time to take a photo of your work and put it out there, you know? So I don't know, like everyone's got a different way of doing it. And I've been like having a lot of fun with like the business side of it. And I guess after getting into some ice carving and meeting the ice carvers who have a very different mindset about carving. Um, yeah, I think they do. They're a lot more commercial with it. Typically they cut, they're in the culinary world. So it's a little more hierarchical, hierarchical. That's how you say it, right? Anyway, like there's this different, different structure to it. And they use CNC a lot, you know, for logos. And, and you know, you can sell an ice carving for the same money that you'd make for wood carving in the same size. And sometimes they buy multiples before different, you know, having different tables. And then they'll buy repeats. They'll do it again the next year for their event. So it's interesting because it's like people will spend more money on something that's going to go away in a few hours than something that they could have for 15 to 20 years. I don't know. I know that that always amazes me because you know people will will get really upset if there's a small crack or you know they're worried about the cracking factor or they're worried about having to put you know stain or sealant on it and then um I can't remember the artist but I was just studying an artist with my students that makes art just out of twigs and um he he would say you know someone someone paid, you know, thousands of dollars for this carving and they know in about three, four years, it'll deteriorate. And I'm going, why are people so worried about chainsaw carvings and, you know, how long they can live and whether or not they're going to crack? Cause people are paying for ice and people are paying for twig sculptures that are going to rot. <laughs> Maybe that takes the pressure off for some people, you know? Right. But, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm getting rid of some, like I'm trying to downsize cause space and Austin's expensive and, um, my life is kind of going through some transition right now. I'm getting roommates and like <clears throat> having to get all the stuff out of my spare bedroom and storage and all this stuff. So I'm sifting through all this stuff and I'm trying to make hard choices about things I've accumulated. And I'm, I like to collect slash hoard like yeah. a mixture of furniture and decor and uh, books and um, yeah, mainly craft supplies. I just have like tons of craft supplies. And then, you know, once it starts to pile up, you forget what you have and you just buy the same thing over and over again. Uh -huh. I like three bedazzlers because I keep forgetting I own one. Um, anyway, I'm like trying, to, like trying to go through a bunch of stuff right now. <clears throat> so I think that people get maybe overwhelmed by the bulkiness. Cause, like, mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe why sometimes these speed carvings can go for more money than the big competition pieces. Because nobody knows where they're going to put a six-foot carving necessarily, you know, or how they're going to get it home. No. And I think maybe it intimidates them. But an ice sculpture for an event where they can take some cool pictures and put their logo on it, it's just interesting, the value of things. And the thing that I think is interesting is how it's like if you value your time and try to figure out a way to, like, make more, like, 
keep the price point low, but not burn yourself out or whatever. If you start, if it's like, I feel like there was like some little bit of animosity about rough outs and, and things like that. But you don't see the other side that's like trying to figure out this production thing or like how to keep some consistency or place orders or tables or whatever, you know, like you don't see the other side going and hassling speed carvers, you know, I don't know. Like, yeah. I mean, I'd probably start a bunch of shit this by this conversation. I'm sorry. <laughs> I bet we will. <laughs> it's just, it's just one of those things right now where people are struggling with how, how to deal with it, whether to accept it or not. I, I mean, I think it's coming whether we want, whether, you know, however we feel about it, but I kind of think that as far as the business end, anything that can help a full-time carver to, you know, do that production work faster without breaking their body so that they can then focus on what they love and the sculpture. Well, yeah. And um, making it accessible to people who can't afford really overly priced things without lowering your value. Cause that's the thing I'm struggling with too. It's like a lot of the, the people that follow me are younger and they don't have tons of money and they, and they don't need something big cause they have apartments or whatever. So I'm like, well, how am I going to get carvings to these kids? Or I'm saying kids I'm cause I'm almost 40, but anyway, like, these people like I can't charge less for my time and I, I can't stand doing repeats anyway. So like I can only make like a couple of things and the same thing before I get kind of tired of it. So I don't know, like I'm experimenting with it the way I justify it too. It's like, if you go to an art fair and you look at like, we have this one pecan, pecan street in Austin, which is like a whole mix of different kinds of things like welders, glass blowers, lamp workers, you know, painters, Mm -hmm. furniture maker whatever and for the most part like a lot of the ones that are fairly successful I mean there's some you see that they've painstakingly done everything by hand but a lot of them start to do repeats you can tell they mass produce some things or they do prints you know like uh, there's this one artist in town and I love her work and I've bought a couple of her original oil paintings but she's made like cards and calendar and children's books and things using these same images she sold the original like I bought the couple of her originals which I'm happy to have because then I see people with prints or like little necklaces that have the same image on it. And I know that I have the, the oil painting, but I was like, sure. to be in a position at the time where I could buy that painting, but she still needs to make, she put all that work into it. And even like, let even if she was lucky enough to get what she put in hours, like that thought is worth something. And every other company, every other like business figures out a way to like make the most out of their ideas. I don't know why there's so much resistance in this community sometimes for that kind of notion. I don't know. I, I wonder if, cause you know, like in the, in the painting world, if you're buying an original, you know, it's an original and it's probably thousands of dollars. And if you're buying a print, you know, it's a print and it's $150. Yeah. I wonder if there's something to, you know, stating, you know, this was CNC roughed out and hand finished you know versus this is completely handmade like I don't even know how sometimes you, I don't even know if you can tell but um and maybe just explaining the reason for the price difference I just call it a wood carving yeah I mean and then if something special say it's one of a kind I don't know like uh yeah I guess I do explain if somebody's asking about the chance of carving and I think it's pretty obvious maybe not to anyone but you know they have a certain look to them sure and, and i I, I, I don't have a CNC, so I'm go, just going off of stuff I've seen. But 
the downside for me is that because I haven't done, and this is where my lack of experience and the things that these speed carvers are kind of saying, like, you're not going to be a very good carver if you just blah, blah, blah. I can see maybe what they're saying in certain ways when it comes to like, especially when you're alive and in person, if you're not carving every day, it shows in your body and movement and everything, you know? Um, yeah. But not everyone's built to, to do the same thing every single day. Um, and it's great that they are. <laughs> I'm really jealous. But I get like bored and I like to jump around and do different things. And I've also learned based on watching in, from the other world, from art and entertainment, <clears throat> from entertainment, coming from that background, and watching people succeed with a lot less work than I'm watching my friends, like not less work, but I don't want to piss off anyone in that world either. But chainsaw carving is no joke. Like it's physical labor. It's mental labor. It's creative labor. It takes a lot of stamina. It takes a lot of inventiveness and adaptability because even if you have an idea, you know, the material sometimes does something else and you have to adapt. So right. it's like really a super challenging thing. But I've watched other yeah. people who are doing things that, like, you know, it's work, but I don't think it takes as much, like, ingenuity or whatever, like, in other other fields. I'm not even going to be specific. But other people make a lot more money doing a lot less inventiveness and and physical labor and everything. It's like, mm-hmm. it's not all about the money. And somebody was kind of making a comment in the forum today about how, like, well, if it's all about money, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, it's not because... If, if it were about the money, I'd be in a different business. And I think most yeah. artists would be. Like even the really good business people as artists are still more on the art side because if they just cared about money, they would be doing something, you know, that brought in more money. Like art is still challenging to sell. I think it's my goal is just not to have another nine to five day job working for somebody else. Yeah. And like, how do you do that? And like the thing with carving too and – so your body at some point isn't going to cooperate or you don't want to like you get sick or like, I'd like to have another baby. And I'm like, well, how am I going to do that? Like if I have to take, you know, a certain amount of time off of carving, like what would I do right. if my body is like not, not in commission? So, and I know a lot of carvers start to like take on apprentices and build up, you know, galleries or do other things to figure out how to, to go into a semi-retirement or whatever, when their bodies, they don't want to like carve or starve every day. So yeah. I know that everyone's thinking about this stuff, but I don't know why people get uptight about CNC if it's just a solution. It's just another tool. I've been seeing you travel a lot. What networking tips do you have for people who want to make professional connections and do more travel? Well, I mean, so it, for me, it started with the Ridgeway Rendezvous. That's where I started to meet the community. I mean, I was lucky enough, at least with Doug and RL, to meet them. And then at their Capri, I got to meet uh, Ken Tynan, and Damien from Pennsylvania, they came down. And then um, they told me about Ridgeway Rendezvous. And then I went up there. And that's when I started to plug in the, to the community. And um, I, and there's other places that can do, where like other places where you can come into the carving world and you don't have to have a lot of experience, but you can go and meet people and present your work and carve in front of an audience. Um, like Cheptacular, I think. Like I think you can apply to that one. I don't think it's like an invitation-only thing. Like there's some of these more gathering-style ones where there's like, I guess easier to go and to make the make friends. You yeah. meet a lot of people, not just like Americans or North Americans, but like internationals. Mm-hmm. And then Facebook obviously is great. Like every time I see a car, like once you start adding carvers, you start to see more carvers pop up in your like suggestions. And so yep. I, I, my rule of thumb is like anytime there's a chainsaw carving in a profile picture, I'll add them. 
Yeah. And I started doing that with ice carving too, just to meet the community. And then as I travel more places, um, like, um, I guess the, the first international carving trip I took was English Open because Tim Clock, I met him in Pennsylvania at Ridgeway Rendezvous. He told me all about, mm-hmm. oh, you've got to do the English Open and you got to like go to Carve Carbridge after that up in Scotland. Because like a lot of the carvers will kind of road trip and do them, do two together. Though I do think it's getting right. harder to get into Carve Carbridge because um, I think they can only sustain a certain number of carvers. I mean, and that's true for some events, you know, are smaller and that's why they have to be invitation only. And yeah. Some are like, can take on more like English Open's got quite a few carvers. I think it's like 30 mm-hmm. something people competing in that. So there's like, and then that one you can apply to as well. It's not invitation only. So there's some, I guess it's good talking to the other carvers when you meet them about which ones they know about. And then starting to meet the community, add people on Facebook. I've been another, a fortunate side effect of the YouTube channel. All right. So there's ups and downs of it. Let me start with the upside. The upside is that I get to get, I get a lot of invitations sometimes because people are aware of the videos and they've seen them or they've been shared. And so yeah. I don't have to meet some people in person before they've seen some of my work. So that's been really beneficial. The downside of the way I started with the YouTube channel is that my first chainsaw carving, first finished chainsaw carving, not the hand, but the gear. First thing I ever carved for real is like out there for the world to see. And like, I'm holding an echo, first of all, (laughs) I'm not wearing like, I've got the tiniest little like ear, like earplugs in Uh, the whole thing. I'm trying to carve with the tip and it's not a carving bar. It's like kicking back on me and I look like I can barely hold the thing. Like, I watch it and it's kind of endearing because I'm like, oh wow, look at how far I've come. But on the other hand, I'm like, if anyone comes across this with, and sees it, they might they they don't know what I filmed it necessarily unless they check the date. You know, like it's. Right. I had people make comments about how I suck at sharpening. Like they saw a video I made put out in like 2012. And granted, I haven't gotten like a much better at sharpening, but I have had a lot of sharpening lessons from every single person who watches me sharpen. So yeah, you know, like, but I, I've been around at this point, but. Things people notice, like just dumb stuff I've done, and it's all very like public. So, right. I have pretty much. No, I mean I I can see that because I have some videos, and I don't know if they're maybe like five, six years old now, so not too long ago. But even now, I watch them, and I'm like, oh, that's terrible. But it's cool. And yeah, you fail very publicly. Yeah, but you get yeah you know, yeah right. Well, that's a good skill to have, especially for carving, because it is so performative. Like a lot of carvers I know really thrive on the attention. And I think that's why some of us do it and why we go to these events. We want to be seen doing our work and we want to show what we can do to like the crowd, but like also show off to each other. And I think we all kind of raise our game a bit when we're around each other and we also learn from each other. But like, even if I wouldn't say that there's any competition I've been to or anyone, any of it's felt like malicious or like, any kind of like negative side of the competition like most people are like helpful and share tools and everything that's good yeah but I think we do like work harder around each other work faster around each other I mean granted we have to work fast anyway because of time limits but I think we're all like I I do my best work when I'm surrounded by my carving friends right I feel like you just you feel pushed and challenged by your neighbors even if they're not you know actively challenging you Right, for sure. Well, yeah, just, and sometimes just being around, like, I'm, the thing that I'm having trouble with, it's like, at the beginning, I was like, oh, this is just cool, and I'm just happy to be here, and wow, look, I can just do this thing. But then you start to, like, meet the community, and you, like, get your, like, hero, carving heroes, you know? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, man, I'm at this event with my carving hero, and now I've got to, like, 
you're not even just trying to like get it done on time. Like that was my goal for a long time. Just finish. But now I'm like, I want to like try to do well. Like I want to like hold my own here. Right. So it's, I'm in this sort of uncomfortable in between, which maybe some carvers can relate to. I don't know where it's like, I've gotten a lot better than when I first started, but I see the, what's, what people are capable of. And I'm like, Oh, I want to get there. But, but I'm also not the kind of person that can, carve every single day like I like this this is my busy season so I'm, I'm carving a lot more than usual but um I go through well this last year I got really depressed for a while and I there was like a couple months I didn't carve at all I just like and I know actually quite a lot of carvers go through depression especially in the winter time I yeah struggle with it especially because it's we're all outside most of the time and like sometimes you just don't want to be out in shitty weather hot cold, right you know and so there's lots of things that can get in the way and then the business side of things too like trying to do it all because your brain like if you are a creative person chances are you're going to make choices based on those creative desires but then you have to make all these business decisions and I get what that person on Facebook was saying today like well it shouldn't be about money because it shouldn't like you should try to do it for the love but I think most of us out there that are doing this professionally know that we can't do everything for the love. That's why people make so many like stock carvings and small things that'll sell and move quickly, even if they want to work on a big pirate ship figurehead or whatever. But they, you, know, right. you know that you can make a, a six foot carving. This is my mistake. Like in the early days, I just wanted to carve big stuff. So I made a bunch of like, you know, six foot, four foot, six foot carvings. And then I just like had a shop full of fucking carvings that I like, couldn't sell. So right. learned that lesson that I was told by all the carvers early on, make small simple things that'll sell and that somebody was going on about how you just make them faster and like yeah I mean you're faster than a CNC just go faster and it's like yeah you can go faster but at some point like I don't know I think we should be able to work on those little passion projects right and I know maybe maybe it's me I, I need to be in better shape just in general but when I carve at an event I can carve really fast like I have the ability but when I'm at home if I carve and and I I work a full-time job besides, but if I carve really fast all the time, I get burnt out and my body hurts. And, you know, if I'm pushing myself to the point that I do at an event, I don't think I could maintain that very long. Yeah. Maybe some, maybe other people can. <laughs> well, I do think that they have like right now I'm starting to feel better in my body. Like the beginning of the season, the first event, I was pretty sore the next day. And yeah. I can tell, like, especially when I shoot video, when I haven't carved for a while, I just look like clunky and weird. Like, <laughs> <laughs> by the end of the carving season after I've been carving like every weekend and you know trying to make stock between like actually being in the flow of things which I hear apparently every carver does all the time everyone except for me but um, <laughs> by the end of the season like my arms are toned and like I have all the stamina in the world I can carve all day and like it's fine my back doesn't hurt the next day just because like my body's used to it yeah I do love that I love yeah. being at the end of the carving season and being a little bit like sinewy and you know suntanned and yeah. Fluid with the chainsaw. Right. I should carve more. And I every time I go to an event, I'm like, I can need to carve more because I'm going to be like trying to hold my own with people that are just like, you know, super impressive. So right. it's I think we all suffer from imposter syndrome. And I definitely have felt it, I guess because the here's the other downside of starting with YouTube stuff. Starting with a background, like I had built up a social media following doing writing a comic for five years and hosting podcasts and, you know, doing design and hosting web series. And like, I did a bunch of creative work that was fairly public before. And then I jumped into carving and then I wanted to 
brand everything as the stuff I was doing. Like I was running this like art gallery. Um, I had this like art venue, music venue, warehouse, kind of grungy art gallery on the east side of Austin until I couldn't afford it anymore. And now I just have like a shop. So I had like all these things that I jumped into and like labeled with, but, but nobody and the people that followed me, actually, I didn't think I would ever live down that comic, but I, they now like know me for chainsaw carving, but I didn't think it would ever happen right away. The downside is that when I went to like the English open and I was just carving, like was my first like competitions. And I made this, I tried to make this moon goddess, but it ended up looking by the time, like I got, I pulled like the worst number. I got this like skinny oak log that had this big lump of like dirt in it. And it was like, having to cut the log pretty much in half to get rid of all this rot. I had this really skinny log, but I still wanted to try this idea. So I tried to make this moon goddess and she ended up looking like this mangled woman sitting in a banana peel. And like, <laughs> they were like, so, and the guy who was the auctioneer was trying to help me out. And he was like, this is, you know, internet famous Griffin Ramsey and from the United States. This is our carving. And he went on and on and on trying to drag money out of his people. Nobody wanted to buy this thing. Finally, somebody put like $200 down just to like, move on I think they felt so bad and I felt so so embarrassed it was like I've had some embarrassing moments in carving because everything's so public sometimes but it was excruciating I wanted to like sink into the ground it was awful um but there was this expectation because of that like online following that I would be like amazing at this or something and it didn't even carving but (laughs) so and it's not to I'm not trying to I don't feel like I don't belong or that I don't deserve what I have because I have built it up over time doing different things and I'm proud of all those things that I did. But, and, but because of that, that, that following, sometimes I, have got, I know I've gotten opportunities that I may not have had ordinarily. And so I, it's important to me to live up to those things and like try and keep putting things out and keep experimenting with this. And, and I, I feel like, you know, confident. I'm getting more confident. I feel like excited about carving. I love doing it. Um, I've made enough things right now and there's plenty of things that I'm proud of that I've made and I'm putting together a portfolio. So I feel like solidly in the middle somewhere and good, but it's that, that imposter syndrome thing really did affect me, especially early on, I guess, largely because of just the, the public side of everything. As much as it's helped, it's also made me feel kind of awkward sometimes. So it's a lot of pressure. Uh, it is pressure, but that's a lot of this in general is pressure, you know, with the, that stuff yeah. or not. Like you sh- you're standing in front of a bunch of people, you're competing against a bunch of people, some really awesome people. Um, you know, you've got two days, three days to finish some big thing. You know, you're on the road. You don't, a lot of times you don't have all your tools or everything you would normally have at your shop, you know, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of people watching you at the same time and some of your heroes watching you sometimes too. So it, it can be pretty high pressure in general. I know I think that intimidates me the most when I'm carving with people that I think are incredible carvers because then I'm like oh, <laughs> what are they thinking about how I'm carving or what I'm using for a tool or <laughs> but I will say the community is usually pretty generous with their information and I think that's awesome yeah I think it's very much I so. think especially probably because we all had to struggle on our own with this at some point like and when people ask me how do you get started carving I'm like well there's a few places I guess you can do a workshop, maybe different parts of the country, but really like you kind of have to be willing to just go and get a saw and start trying it. There's so much alone time and just figuring it out. And the best part about other people in the community and, and keep not, not being cocky and listening to the people who've been doing it, you know, and checking out what people are up to is that I feel like every carving event, I just get so much better and I learn something new and I'm like, Mm -hmm. how have I been doing this for this many years? I didn't know this, you know? So 
I love doing it. Like I'm, I'm addicted to that because it is where a lot of the professional development, artistic development happens on the road for me. I know. And I definitely, I think I learn so much at an event that it just, it, it speeds up. Like you said, it's professional development. It speeds up my development so much more than I would, you know, in months at home yeah. in just a few days at an event. Yeah, because you start to get into your routine and way of doing things. And actually, um, uh, uh, Dayton Scoggins had this conversation with me. Um, and he's a very knowledgeable person. I've heard a lot of different carvers say about Dayton that they've learned a lot from him. Um, and yeah. he was telling me, he's like, you know, you're, you're, there's a point where like people plateau. Where like they're learning, they're learning, they just can't get enough, they're learning. And then at some point, some people are like, all right, like... I make these things and they're cool and they're selling. So this is good enough for me. And then they just kind of like sink into a pattern of doing that same thing over and over again. And then, um, sure. so he said, and the different people, I wouldn't say burnout people, different people plateau or calm down at different points. Like some people get satisfied earlier with their work and they don't continue to push themselves. Some people keep pushing themselves, keep pushing themselves, you know, and then they get to a certain point. So mm-hmm. I guess my goal is to like, keep trying to learn and like keep trying to pick up new things. And, but that I'm trying, I'm starting to apply that in some ways. It's not just about carving. It's about business and, you know, storytelling, um, trying new things. One thing I miss about theater, I, it was something different every time. And I worked with other people and I'm starting to feel a little uh-huh. bit lonely. So like, I think maybe I'm addicted to these carving shows cause that's when I get to hang out with the carvers. But for the most part, like getting myself to my shop to hang out by myself is getting to be more of a challenge. And I wonder who you've been, you know, with ice carving, don't they usually work in teams? Yeah. Or no. Well, and there's a guy. um, So I don't ever really want to run an ice business. A lot. Like I feel like I have enough equipment with wood and ice. So like, I don't have any interest in that. I'd like to just guest carve. And I enjoy ice. I, I actually really did not expect to like it so much. And I really do. I think it's enchanting. But uh, there's this guy, Sean Leahy, down in San Marcos. He's the one who kind of got me started and told me about Aaron Caustic's boot camp and uh, got me going. And I help him out with this holiday production sometimes. So we're trying to find some ways to, like, collaborate or work together. And sometimes people approach me about ice carving, and I've been trying to figure out a way maybe just to direct it to his business, and I just pop in as, like, a live car. Yeah. And then I get to have fun, and he can handle the ice delivery and ice making, and he's got the freezers, and I don't really – I want to keep that kind of joyful and easy. I don't think I want to jump into the whole business side of it. I wonder though, if there's a way and maybe it's not, but you know, like for chainsaw carvers to work on more collaborative pieces sometimes, or even create competitions where it's a team working together. I mean, there's some overseas, isn't there? Well, I mean, when I first met Norman Altermatt, he's, uh, he's a Swiss carver. And I just talked with him in okay. Japan this last year, but I met him at the Ridgeway Rendezvous. And he came, it was in 2017, he came with a, they called themselves like the Swiss Swiss carving team. And they all had like matching gear, but they, they weren't wearing like traditional like carving outfits. It was almost like motorcycle jackets and like weird futuristic helmets with like, it's yeah. like they made this big Game of Thrones dragon together and they were super organized and they got this really big piece done. And everyone was, I think, super impressed. They looked really sharp. Um, and I, I love that yeah. idea, teamwork, and honestly, just doing bigger things. Like, it's it's hard right. to sell big carvings, but 
I like here's here's another example of being strategic versus just carving every day, carve, carve, carve. It's like, okay, wait, let's write a proposal and let's go to the, let's uh, go check out where all these this grant money is for these big projects that are going to be seen by lots of people in the middle of the city or like attached building mm-hmm. or like all these hotels are moving here in Austin and like, so I'm trying to be like, well, you know, I do want to carve more, but I also really like the idea of large scale public projects. Like it's great to be able to make a bunch of small things that will end up in somebody's living room and it's awesome. But wouldn't it be great to make some really giant thing with all your friends that you get paid well for. And that has like a life, a public life next to like a popular building or popular square. And some of the carvers I really respect have figured out how to like plug into these large scale projects. And some of them work on them together and some do them independently. But I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's where like strategy and taking time and self-promoting and writing a proposal and getting the images together for it. And, hiring somebody on Fiverr and putting it together as this like packet, you know, like I, I do spend a lot of time coordinating little things like that and trying for those things. And I do think that they are starting to pay off. Like I'm feeling a lot of really, I'm feeling really hopeful and excited about some things in the works. And, and I think that as much like, I, I do need to carve more because when I do these live events, I want to be ready and fluent and smooth and have awesome arms. But I also want to get yeah. smarter at business and like not hit my head against the wall and, and be able to work on inspirational, exciting things and find money for my friends. And, you know, like, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of that that could be put into this, not just with carving, just art in general. And I think there's a lot of possibilities now with Instagram and all these ways where we don't have to wait for people to approve of us and to say, oh, you're good enough to be in here and to do this. Like, if you can. Right. right. There's no, there's no gate. There's no gatekeeper. Totally. And that's, it's so true. But the downside of that is that you're now expected to do every single thing and be a marketing genius. And like, yeah. <laughs> so, but I've been trying to like, another thing about business is just learning what you're bad at. There's plenty of things that like I'm discovering about business that I never thought about that I, that I'm enjoying and I think I'm good at, but then there's a lot of things I'm discovering I'm terrible at. And now I'm trying to just like reach out for help when I'm, when I hit those holes in my knowledge or how much I can even focus on something. And sometimes I have to pay for that. And it's like investing back in my business. So mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling, but I'm excited about a lot of the stuff, but I'm also, I'm excited about a lot of the things around carving, not just carving. No, I like that advice about the, the grants and the public art, um, I'm on email lists in Minnesota and I get, you know, when there's calls to artists for different public spaces and it's kind of a cool thing. I've, I've applied to a couple that I haven't gotten. And then I did get one grant, um, to work on a piece and I got to work on a piece and I was paid to do it and then, you know, paid pretty well, but then donated the carving at the end. And that was incredible because I got to carve what I wanted. So that's good advice. Yeah. And you can find those things where it's like, it ends up helping helping somebody, but then you get paid too. And art is appreciated. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's possible. And I think so, if the CNC can help carvers get their stock made so they can put their brain into something new and exciting or bigger or, or meet it. And somebody on the, the, the forum today kind of was like, accused me of being smug because I was saying that carvers then could take a, take that time service the people who don't have the money for custom, make sure that they, they get something that they want that, that is your work, but then have be able to go after the bigger pockets or deeper pockets and for bigger projects or whatever. And somebody said, well, must be nice. And it's like, well, it's just a matter. It's like, if you can save time in one thing that you do all the time, like if you're made, like 
a bunch of eagles. He made like five eagles by hand and they all sold and he needs to make more eagles. If they all kind of look the same, or if you have a design you're happy with, you know, like make some rough outs. And then the time you'd be spending making all those eagles, maybe you come up with this like badass design. That's like, you know, even if it's an eagle, like maybe it's part of a headboard or whatever, like it's something new. And I'm probably going to just like start shit by saying any of this stuff. I don't know. It just seems like, <laughs> like I get, I'm bored easily. Yeah. And well, and I think so many people are in, in different, different situations, right? Like different regions of the country, different um, places as far as how art sells, different places as far as if there's a lot of carvers or not a lot of carvers. Some people like doing production. Some people hate doing production. Yeah, um, I mean, there's so many different situations, but I can, I see where you're coming from. And I, I, I can't speak to, I'm, I'm not a full-time carver, but I can see wanting to rough things out so that I can focus on sculpture, but that's just, that's how I, that's what I thrive on is the big sculptures. Yeah. Well, you know, actually I just found it recently. Some of a few of my like favorite carvers that are really amazing and do some really interesting work. That's like super special. Uh, they have full-time jobs doing other things where they get paid. Like, and then they, it's like their carving then can just be about the art. Like that's her day that was like, yeah. well, it shouldn't be about money. Well, then you should probably have a job doing something else so you can just do whatever you feel like with carving. And I've actually had plenty of moments where I felt like quitting or giving up where I'm like, man, I should just get a job. Like when I had to buy insurance for myself this year, like I should just mm-hmm. get a job and then like carve on the weekends for fun and never have to worry about making money off of this ever again. And just like spend a million hours making a bunch of tiny pointless details and a thing I want to make because my friend wants something, you know, like the way I used to do art, which is so pure and exciting. Yeah. And, and I miss sometimes like I, I miss like treating art that way. And also I miss some, like sometimes I get bored of carving to be quite honest. Like I miss sewing. I've been really wanting to make a quilt, but I can't justify it right now. Cause I'm, I have so much wood stuff that I should be doing. And if I'm having any, any extra creative energy at all, it should be going into my business and it should be carving related in the same direction as my brand or whatever, you know, like, but art, right. art, when it's unrestricted kind of flows better. And maybe you have a little bit more, you can put more love into it because you're not totaling up the hours and how much money you can make off of it. Right. I know. And it sounds kind of funny because I've, I have my full-time job, but I mostly do commissions, which I can't decide if I love or not, but um, you know, I'll, I'll get a bunch of orders and, and you're like, Oh, that's not really what I want to carve right now, you know, or that's not, that's not what I'm into, but it's what they ordered. Um, so then you battle with like, do I take the commissions or do I not take the commissions? Do I just turn people down? No, I'm not carving. Yeah. Well, commissions, it's so funny because I thought at the beginning that I wanted to just focus on commissions and not really do production or anything, but I find commissions to be really stressful like a lot of emailing back yeah. and forth it's a lot of like making them happy and then even while you're carving you're kind of wondering if they're going to be happy and you'll end up putting more time and energy into the details than if you were just making them to sell yeah. and you know mm-hmm. even that they probably won't even notice but it's like it's like you've had this almost relationship formed with them at that point like i yep. i've been really really enjoying actually the live carving shows lately where i just show up for a day i do kind of like a tool demo and make something in a parking lot of like a hardware store or whatever. And, and it's funny because it's yeah. so opposite of what I thought I was going to get into with carving. And this is why I can see, I really appreciate speed carvers and I could, I definitely see the benefit of speed carving. It's not easy to just go and make something quickly, especially if something, a crowd suggestion, a lot of times I'll show up and then the store that hired me doesn't necessarily 
they decide what they want, like, as I'm driving up, you know, so like, thinking on the fly, <laughs> like running to their back room, printing out some like pictures or whatever. Um, but I kind of have fun with it. It's like I show up, I unload everything, set it up, meet the people. Sometimes some, some of them are repeats now. So I've gotten to know people more. Uh, come up with, figure, mm-hmm. usually figure out what's going to be carved if I have the wood for it and then carving it. And then I like have to get done before their events done and then loading everything up and driving away again. So it's like tons of work, but I don't know. I enjoy it. Cause it's like set up, come up with something, work fast, think hard. All right, done. Like finished in a day. It's kind of nice and encapsulated. Yeah. I have a short attention span, so it kind of suits that. And then there, I thrive off of the attention too. I love when people watch me work and I like watching people work. I think it's, and I love right now, we were talking about Instagram and all these tools we have. There's also a big interest in live art right now. You know, yeah, a lot of people true. are really into live painting, live spray paint artists. And chainsaw carving is really like in a great position right now because it's so interesting and and people are so intimidated by the chainsaw and so impressed that anyone can handle it, especially make something beautiful with it and quickly interrupt them. Yeah. So. And- yeah, no, I've noticed that my stu- my students that are on YouTube all the time they're they're always showing me live art, like you said, and I've seen it more than ever. Even stuff that that we would have never, you know, ten years ago watched someone do, and they're very interested in it. <laughs> Well, I think that there's this whole maker culture that people are excited about right now. And in general, there's a lot of design in the world. Like think about, you know, 20, 30 years ago, like there weren't nearly as many little startups and pop-ups and cute little places and cute little signs and like cute little stories. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of thought and in, in individuality at the moment, at least, at least in North America, I can't speak for everywhere, but a lot of places, even internationally, yeah. are getting little cute little things. It's like this renaissance. Maybe because yeah, so many exciting. people have all of those those tools now. I mean, if you have like a Adobe subscription, you can edit your own videos and edit your own photos and draw vectors mm-hmm. and like do pretty much everything from your laptop at a coffee shop. Yeah, it's cool. Yes. Okay, so I think I'm I'm just looking. We've covered a lot <laughs> of my <laughs> questions just in conversation. It just kind of naturally happened. But I was going to ask you, um, what what inspires you right now? Like for the, you know, the, the heart pieces that you really want to make yourself. Um, I think, um, I think right now I'm want to do some larger things or like full yeah. spaces. Like, um, there's this restaurant in Austin that I'm talking to right now that I would like to work with and help create a patio space. And like, okay, that's kind of, getting back into that set design feeling of like a creating an atmosphere, but I still want to do around carving, right. but create like a, an area, you know, something, I don't know, a little bit more, something public and um, creating like an environment. So hopefully that will come through and I'll be able to, to put some time into that and, and focus on like building like a big space or something. Yeah. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of really cool places in, in Austin and, um, and, yeah, I guess that's that's exciting me. I'm also um, really one thinking about because space is an issue, and I'm trying to like cut costs because I've um, gone through a lot of transition, and I'm trying to figure out ways to like save money and make more money. Um, I kind of want to get rid of my shop, but it seems like a terrible idea. But I'm on the road so much, and I'm like constantly loading and unloading my van, and like setting up a pop up tent, and it doesn't look super impressive. So I'm thinking about building a mobile shop on a trailer, and. Like, and oh, sure. figuring out a place, sharing space with some place in Austin and like maybe setting up in, in one mobile 
kind of way and partnering with different groups that want to have like carving done. So the thing I worry about is where am I going to put my wood? I've got bigger tools like, you know, like a, like a bandsaw or whatever. Like I, there's all these things I don't know where I'm going to put them. So I don't have to downsize and get rid of things. And then maybe, maybe if whoever I join or space I join, maybe we can share some tools or something. I'm trying to figure it out because space in Austin is getting really expensive and I'm in like the, inexpensive yeah. part of Austin of my shop now but it's about to change and get more residential and a lot more expensive and so I'm trying to figure out a creative yeah. solution I haven't seen this a lot with um chainsaw carving but in Minnesota there's some towns that have I'm trying to even think what they call them but just like an artist community um or like just spaces like <clears throat> excuse me in St. Cloud there's a place and it's like this big building and it's three stories and there's studios and I think they pay like a membership or something to use it. But like there's a whole wood turning shop and there's a whole wood carving studio and there's a there's a ceramic studio and there's a painting studio and um, people, they use it together because different people have memberships to it. So like if you want to be a if you want to be a wood turner and you don't have any of the tools, you can pay and just use all the tools that are there. Yeah. Like I wonder, I wonder if you could set something like that up for chainsaw carving, and it could be like a shared, a shared space. Yeah, somehow. I'm not sure. Like, so Race Hoffman has been suggesting I teach some workshops because she's doing that, and she says it's awesome. She loves it, and she's bringing yeah. in like some consistent money that way. But um, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. If I'm a teacher yet, though. I probably should. I think most artists find themselves in a position where they're going to be teaching at some point. Um, yeah. So I'm interested, definitely, in developing a little workshop or figuring out, you know, if it's something I can do. And I know these little these studio spaces, like in St. Cloud, I there's pretty much absolutely no teaching. It's just like you pay a membership, and the space is yours to use. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So I'm sure there'd have to be some kind of insurance with that's that. Obviously, but... I don't know if I'd want to run one. That's like I'm trying to pick my battles a bit. I have a lot of interest yeah. and I, I would like to definitely, when I talked about working with other people, part of that is like, I don't want to be responsible for everything. Like, <laughs> but, <laughs> yep. especially when it comes to insurances, I've, I've had to get so many different insurances this year that I'm paying for out of pocket and you know, all of the, all of the gripes. Anyway, like you end up running the shop and not making any art. Yeah, for sure. And like, <laughs> and I'm and with organization, I'm already having to get help just with answering my emails and trying to like follow through on things. So, um, and a friend of mine is helping me with sales and, and thinking more sales mindedly. Cause I, my thing is I always like project sounds cool. I'll say yes to it before I even have that conversation and I'm just trying to get better at negotiating. And I think it's something that a lot of people aren't comfortable doing. I, and I, the, the whole thing about women not really being trained to negotiate in an early age, as much as men are, I think is definitely true. Though I don't know. I'm sure there's plenty of men out there that weren't ever really trained to negotiate either. And people always do. It seems like with art, it's like always up for negotiation what something costs, even if you tell them what it would cost, you know? And if you experience yeah. that. I know. And it's funny because you're going, well, you don't really negotiate on much else yeah. that you buy. So the plumber, you don't have like, you don't haggle with the plumber over like his fee or whatever, you know? So and it's like my materials right. cost a certain amount, you know, like I'm not, can't go to Home Depot and like convince them that because I'm not making as much money that they shouldn't charge me as much for, you know, sanding pads or whatever. <laughs> right. So I don't know. I'm trying to get better at like establishing a value than sticking to a value. And I kind of felt like 
there was some resistance yeah. to that, that that idea for just like wanting to do every single thing by hand. It's like at some point, especially if you just get more and more skilled and faster and faster, like this, if the trick is going faster and faster and getting more and more skilled, are you charging for that amount of skill? Mm-hmm. You know, or are you just trying to keep things fast and cheap for people? And that's good. Like, I think it's good to have art that is accessible to all, not just to people who have really nice houses or whatever. Well, that's a good point, though, because I think it was um, Steve Higgins said to me, uh, you know, when I was trying, when I was first getting started and I wasn't sure how to price things, he's like, well, you're not, because people constantly ask you when they're trying to, to negotiate you down, well, how long oh, yeah, did it no take shit. you? yeah, I hate that question. I'm like, it's not your <laughs> And he goes, Steve Higgins told me, he's like, well, it, it took me nine years to learn how to do it. You know, like, don't, don't say, well, it took me an hour because like a surgeon can do a surgery in three hours, but they trained for, you know, 10 years to learn how to do that surgery in three hours. So you're paying for all my experience and and hard work learning. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, And it is also like, it's not something everyone can do. And if they... The thing that's hard right. to remember, and the thing it's hard if you're hungry, and, and I, I hear what you're saying about certain regions, especially you have a lot more competition, you've got more carvers, and you've got carvers maybe willing to charge less than you, and so then you feel the need to maybe drop your prices too, or whatever. Um, so I know it's probably a different a different situation everywhere, but that's I think that's why as a group we need to all kind of encourage each other to find creative ways to make money and not get on each other's cases about how each different people choose to make money at this. It's like the goal is to not have a real job, right? Like, or the goal is just to feed our families. So the goal is, it's not some kind of, I don't think any of the chainsaw carvers I've ever met, regardless of how they run their business, are malicious, greedy people that are in it for something other than the art or the lifestyle of it. You know, like, yeah. if, and if any, like, I don't think any of us are making so much money that any of us should get on anyone's case. If you, if you see somebody making money at it, learn from it, you know, like, <laughs> don't, don't get mad. Or if you think it's bad, learn from it. <laughs> That's what yeah. I mean by looking at these other industries and these other people who make so much money for a lot less work and being like, well, how can we do it to where we get paid for our time better? Because what we're doing is so interesting and hard. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, and I think it's good to it's good to have the discussion because it's something new and it's something that people are trying to deal with or accept or not accept. And uh I think that's why people get so heated about it. Yeah, but so. it's like, and this is a comment I left on there um, about it too. It's like people get in, and getting back to the CNC or rough outs or any of these new technologies that people call cheating. I've heard a lot of the, like some of the older carvers tell me that people were really resistant. Carvers were really resistant of a carving bars at one point or some carvers, there were like a few that were like, that's cheating. You know, <laughs> like they didn't consider it chainsaw carving unless they're using like, standard chainsaw so and i've heard about that and die grinders yeah. too angle grinders like well it's not a chainsaw carving if you, if you finish it off with another tool it's like well fine it's a wood carving and we're using all the tools i don't know there's some really interesting things you can do with cnc if you do any logo work companies really want their logos perfect and how much time are you going to sit there with a dremel when you could cnc that part you know i don't know i i say yeah. just use the tool that works i get why people are up in arms and maybe we don't call it chainsaw carving if it's like if a rough out is largely rough out and it's not a lot of chainsaw texture, then yeah, maybe it's more of a wood carving. But let's just change maybe what we call it or how we describe it. But I think if we can all if we can manage as artists to make money and keep doing what we like to do and not burn ourselves out on it and change how we feel about art, that's what I'm scared of. 
Like, how do you keep doing this and make money at it and not change how you feel about it? As I, I know I keep going back to this, but as I try to wrap my mind around it, um, you know, the, the knife carvers rough theirs out with the bandsaw and they still call it a knife carving, but it, but it's commonly known that everyone roughs out with a bandsaw and then finishes it with a knife. So they've been doing it for so long that everybody's cool with it. But I'm guessing that, you know, way back in the day, they didn't have have the bandsaw part of it, you know, and it was all knife from start well, to finish. Well, um, as I was saying that the forum earlier, too, um, uh, the people who, there's always a place for speed carving because the, the power in the chainsaw, the, the cool thing that I've found you can make more money at, the potential to make more money at for the time, are the are shows and live shows and events and you have to be even if you're doing like a big competition piece you're not doing speed carving if, you, if you're a fast carver it really helps you know get your idea out there before the because there's always a time limit so like yeah the speed carvers the people out there who are cranking away and doing it and like are really fast like somebody today in the forum i wish i had everyone's name i feel bad not crediting but somebody today was like like uh what's that carving machine? Is that Stephen Higgins and some other people? Because there are some people that carve as fast as machines. Like they're super fast. And the only way you get like that is yeah. lots and lots and lots of practice. And yes, those carvers are yep. great. But I also know some speed carvers that are really, really fast that aren't necessarily the best carvers in the world. And some of my favorite carvers are the ones that whittle away and take their time too. So mm-hmm. what, speed is great. It benefits you to be fast, but it's not just about speed. It's about what's in your brain and if you can get it out. You know, so I don't know. I go around and around on this in my head. And there's a lot of different ways to get it out. Because I, I think I know the way and then I watch people and I'm like, oh, he's doing it a totally different way or she's doing it a totally yeah. different way. I agree. Cool. Cool. <laughs> Why? Well, this has, been a, this has been a good talk. I appreciate yeah, you thanks. coming I'm on. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Chainsaw Carving Podcast today. If you like the Chainsaw Carving Podcast, please make sure to like it, share it, send it to your friends, um, review it on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Uh, Be sure to go and check out our other episodes and we'll see you next time.